0: Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org.
1: Well, welcome to you all. I'm Alex Jones. I'm the uh, director of the Shorenstein Center on the Press Politics and Public Policy. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to this brown bag lunch with Keith Richburg, who is a very distinguished foreign correspondent for the Washington Post. He is also a fellow at the IOP this year. And the IOP, like the Shorenstein Center, we we specialize in media. They sort of dabble in media. But they get very good media people like, uh, like, like this uh, distinguished Correspondent who has spent so much of his career. How many years have you been abroad? Thirty-four yeah. years. 34 oh years. no, no,
2: thir- twenty years abroad. Thirty-four with the 34 Washington Post.
1: Thirty-four with the Washington yeah. Post, and, and uh, uh, he is a, um, a a reporter whose beats have been China and Africa and other places as well. Uh, his topic today, in particular, is China, uh, but I think that uh, you will find that Keith has a breadth of knowledge about the world that is. Uh, worth very much uh, uh, tapping in other areas as well if you are tweeting our the hashtag is uh, China wired it's China wired see it right up there okay Keith welcome very glad to have you
2: well thanks for having me and uh, I can I hope everybody can see me okay here I'll try to speak up so you can hear me down there at the end but uh, and uh, Thanks for having me, Alex, to come and talk about this specifically, because I really get excited about this topic. I think uh, what's happening with China and the Internet is, to me, one of the most exciting things to happen to China in a very long time. And just to give you a little bit of background, my, my first trip to China was 1985 um, when I was actually was going to visit some friends who worked at the U.S. Embassy. That's 1985. And uh, so I spent a couple of weeks there, took a train from Beijing to Shanghai, and that was at a time when pretty much everybody was riding bicycles uh, in both cities, and pretty much everybody was wearing the same thing, either an army outfit or dark blue Mao jackets. And uh, I had the privilege of going back again. I lived in Hong Kong from '95 to 2000, so I didn't go between late 80s and 1995, and then I started going back regularly from Hong Kong 90, between '95 and 2000. And I was able to see some pretty dramatic changes in that 10 years um, you know, you started seeing Beijing become a very fun, livable place, for, especially for expats. You know, there were new restaurants and bars and five-star hotels opening and that kind of thing. Uh, and then I, w- I went away in 2000, I moved to Paris, and we were – as a correspondent, I was involved in Afghanistan and Iraq and all those sorts of things. And I didn't actually get back to – and then in 2008, I was helping cover the U.S. presidential election. And then they asked me in 2009 to go back to China. And so I so I got to see so I went back back in 2009 and it was supposed to be a temporary stay and I actually ended up staying for the next three and three and a half years or so, with one short trip back to the states for a couple of months. So I got to see China in the 80s and the 90s, and then again from 2009 until just January when I came here straight from Beijing to uh, to, to the short to the uh, IOP, um, which is in the next building, and then coming up coming up here to talk to you guys. So. You know, people always ask me what was the main difference. having been somebody who saw China back in 1985, and then in the 90s, and then going back in 2009. The first question I always get is, what's the biggest difference? And obviously, they're the superficial differences of you know the new buildings and the you know in, you know the airports and the uh, central business districts. But I always my first answer when they say, what's the biggest difference? I say the internet. I say that's really changed everything, including you know it, it, especially or particularly the relationship between the Chinese government and the Chinese people. And that really changed everything. And specifically, um, I say Weibo, which is social networking. I'll I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, but Weibo is essentially Chinese version of Twitter. And uh, there are various Weibo platforms, but you know Weibo is just generally used to refer to all of these Twitter-like services that have exploded in China. And so I go. I went back in 2009. I hadn't been there for a while, so and I was actually just filling in for. We had several correspondents who had to leave kind of prematurely, so they just asked me to drop in out of nowhere. So I had not been sort of covering China during that period. So as a you know, for all, any of you journalists, you know, you get parachuted into a place mm-hmm. and you're told. Okay, cover this country. The first thing you do is you look around and say, okay, now what am I going to do here that's new and interesting? So I just started reading some of the local papers, some of the local English language papers, and then trying to glance through the Chinese language papers with the help of our office translators to see just what was new that I could write about. And the first thing I saw was a guy named Mr. Sun, Sun Zhangjie. And uh, so I started writing about Mr. Sun. I started reading about Mr. Sun. I'll just put his picture up there so you see who it is I'm talking about. He was a... Mr. Sun was a driver for a, a company up in Shanghai. And he was drive, on his you know, drive doing messenger services. And someone flagged him down on the side of the highway in the rain and said, oh, my car's broken down, can you give me a lift? And so he said, okay, fine. And so this young man gave this other person a lift. And just a few meters down the road, not even a mile down the road, the police flagged, pulled him over and said, you've been operating as an illegal taxi. And he was fined and because he had been fined, he went back to his job, and he, lo- and he was fired from his job. Now, he thought this was very unfair. He said, I wasn't operating as an illegal taxi. Someone flagged me down on the road and said I needed a lift, but this was a police entrapment scheme where they would set people up to flag down cars. People would get in the cars, and they would stop them a few meters away, so he thought this was grossly unfair, so he went to the court and protested, and they said, sorry, you know, you're an illegal taxi. No, you can't get your fine back. He'd already paid the fine. He went up to the version of the appeals court and they said the same thing get out of here and he felt he was getting no recourse and so what he did was he stood on the uh so he gathered around a bunch of people and he was you know a bunch of jur- local journalists from the area he had called to complain about his case and then he took out a, me- a cleaver and he chopped off his little finger and that's why his hand is in this uh bandage there And that was a form of pro- that was a pretty unusual form of protest but it was a form of protest Now, this this has probably been going on all the time in cities all over, thousands of times a a year, if not per month. The difference was I was sitting in Beijing reading about this story because it had gotten picked up on Weibo, on this Twitter-like service, and then therefore it got picked up on, on all kinds of Internet sites. And so here I am in Beijing reading about this one guy's case down in Shanghai. And I thought, this is something unusual. So I got on a plane and went down to Shanghai and went to this courthouse where he had done this act a couple of days earlier, and because of what he had done, hundreds of other people, uh, thousands, who had been caught in this similar entrapment scheme by the police discovered that, well, this guy is brave enough to protest, and get I should go out and try to get my money back too. And when I showed up, there were hundreds of people who had been caught the same way gathered outside of this Shanghai administrative court building demanding their, demanding their money back, saying this was unfair, et cetera. And it forced the court to say, okay, we're going to review these cases We'll 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 review all of these cases one by one. If anybody who was unfairly entrapped will get their money back again, and so please go home. So it was a fairly minor story in the general scheme of China, but to me something dramatic had happened there. People had, for the first time that since I had been watching China, people had mobilized, had used the internet to get publicity for around an issue that they thought where they were t- being treated unfairly and they actually got the government to at least in- promise to investigate a reverse course. So I wrote that story in, in that way, saying I think we're witnessing something very, very unusual here in China for the first time. It, uh, I, I watched this grow over the next months and years and, and I came up with uh, six areas. And this is not an academic content analysis survey, just my observation. I came up with six areas where I saw Weibo or Chinese Internet really making an impact. Um, missing Children's and I'll just list them all here and then I'll go back and talk about just a few of them in details. Uh, the six are Missing Children's campaigns. Uh, the second was criminal justice and I put Sun's case in that area of, that, of criminal justice. Areas where there was somebody put on trial or somebody who felt they weren't getting justice through the court system who could then use Weibo or the Internet to draw attention to their case. Uh, the third was raising funds for various causes. Fundraising. And then that's, and I mean, sort of like uh, you know, schoolhouses don't have enough lunches in in a certain rural area. Um, they could, you know, they could go on the internet and raise funds uh, during uh, an earthquake or a mining disaster. People would raise funds from the online community. Oh, come on in. And uh, and I found that that was uh, what I found fascinating about that was people, uh, sit, average citizens, started trusting anonymous online giving possibilities as opposed to official government structures that were set up. In other words, if there was an earthquake or a landmine disaster somewhere, there was always the official Red Cross, which is a part of the Chinese government. But some people became reluctant to give to the official organizations, whereas a wealthy businessman, an actor or an actress, or a sports star could set up a collection fund via these Weibo social networking sites. And suddenly, get millions of remnant B and contributions flowing into these sites because people trusted that more than they trusted the official government uh, uh, fundraising agency. So that was th- that was the, uh, the so criminal justice, as I said, these uh, fundraising activities were were big ones. The other one was um, the other area was food safety or food. Cons- I, I put it under a general uh, uh, headline of consumer issues and food safety. Uh, food safety environment so if you thought that your river and your town was being flooded by a factory upstream and you weren't, you couldn't go to your local government because they might be in cahoots you could go on the internet and post the photographs yourself and this would get picked up around the country so that was another whole area and I'll go back to that one again because I, there's, a, there's a fun website I want to show you and the other two are expose, uh, two other areas are exposing corruption which I thought was really a, a huge um, area which, I, which I'll talk at some length about in a bit But basically the way it worked would be if you – especially if you were outside of Beijing in one of the the cities or provinces, if you had a uh, complaint about corruption, the only place you could go would be to the petition office of the government to complain about your local official, et cetera, and most people got no redress. If they tried to make it all the way to Beijing, as many do, they often just got picked up and put on a bus or train and sent back down again, and then the local officials were told to deal with this guy. But having this access to social networking gave people an avenue to expose corruption online, and so therefore it couldn't be ignored uh, at the higher levels. And then the final area, which I kind of just found myself, is uh, I put it under the under the under the headline of giving citizens an alternative source of news, because before, of course, official the official the government officially controls most TV stations and most, if not all, newspapers. There are some independent newspapers and magazines popping up now. But most people don't trust a lot of the what they see in the in the what we would call here the mainstream media. But they have come to get more information and rely more informa- on this information that goes informally through social networking sites. You know, I talked to some people there. Some you know, especially young people. You know, some who worked in my office, my Chinese language teacher, who used to come over to my apartment. They say they got all of their news off Weibo. Uh, they, they didn't believe anything that was in the press. And also, this was a way that stories that were written abroad that were officially not allowed to come into China were able to disseminate through Weibo. They would sometimes get translated and posted up on Weibo. Now, first of all, you might ask, why Weibo? Why, you know, why, you know, why, why Weibo? And, and, and to me, the comparison is to Twitter, but it's more than Twitter, because like Twitter, it's 140 characters, um, which it, but in, in English, that's 140 uh, letters or character numbers, etc. In Chinese, a Chinese character can be a word, uh, or at most two characters together can be a word. So 140 characters, you can actually have a pretty lengthy discourse uh, for that. So uh, for 140 characters, you suddenly got a- people be able to put out pretty seriously lengthy. That's basic- basically imagine a 140-word document that you're able to burst out anytime you want. And even if it's eventually taken down by the censors, which I'll talk about later, that's a lot of message you can get out in 140 characters. And also, uh, Weiball started experimenting way before Twitter... Uh, with things like photographs and video that could be embedded inside that. Twitter is doing that now. They were doing it in China actually from the start, which I thought was fascinating. Uh, China's got uh, – the numbers are astonishing. I, I won't bore you with a lot of numbers. But China's got, according to the official government numbers, about 500 million Internet users. I mean, that's huge. I mean, it's obviously larger than the size of the United States. It's larger than the population of the European Union. Uh, They said they've got 300 million Weibo users, not all of them active all the time, but 300 million. That's almost the population of the United States is on Weibo regularly. And uh, and during their peak period, which they say is around Chinese New Year, they say there's an average of about 32,000 messages being sent every second. That's an enormous amount of communication going back and forth through the transom. So, So I'll just talk about a couple of those areas. The first one was... And, uh, and this is as I saw it develop. The first one was in this area. I'll just I, I put it under this uh, headline of consumer consumer issues, consumer protections, et cetera. And the first one I saw the first time I saw that really explode and effect policy was in uh, March of two thousand and eleven. That was around the time of the earthquake in Japan, the, the tsunami that was uh, triggered the earthquake and tsunami, the earthquake that triggered the tsunami, and then the uh, disaster at the Fukushima nuclear plant. It didn't actually affect China, but people didn't know that. They were, And people were on uh, immediately on Weibo demanding that the air quality be tested because the winds might be blowing from Japan. They demanded that any shipments from Japan be tested. The government, and I actually saw some of the censorship documents went out, were actually encouraging the official mainstream media not to report on possible radiation in coming Japan, not to report on any possible radiation in Japanese food products. But people didn't care on the Weibo, they ball. this was a big, became a source of big discussion. And separately, it became a huge discussion point that people were saying, "How do we know that Chinese nuclear facilities are safe?" Because uh, China, like Japan, is subject to earthquakes, And uh, China had no evacuation plans as Japan did. People were very amazed in, uh, people were very amazed in, in, to see from China watching on television that Japan managed to evacuate that whole prefecture around that nuclear plant. And they started asking questions, you know, how about all these villages that we have next to nuclear plants? How Do these people know where to go if there's a nuclear disaster? The answer was, of course, no, there were no kind of evacuation plans along those lines. So to me, that was absolutely a fascinating example. And what happened then, the State Council, which is kind of the Chinese version of the Cabinet, the ruling body, Basically announced the suspension on all nuclear uh, power plant licenses for a while. They announced they were going to start doing inspections of all the existing ones, and kind of. Th- and it became an issue then that was talked about in the mainstream, meaning government-owned communist party media, because it was really pushed there, I think, by the activists on the Weibo. And uh, and then as so that was that that was in that uh, headline of Consumer Affairs. There were a couple of uh, uh, other areas I wanted to talk about it, but I'm going to go quickly, so I'm going to get as many questions in as possible. The uh, when I saw how Weibo reached its own in terms of an alternative source of news or information, that was that same year, uh, 2011, in July, where there was a, a collision of two high-speed trains in a place called Wenzhou, which is just kind of near, near Shanghai. I was actually down there at the time, and believe it or not, I was actually taking the high-speed train, but I was going the other direction. And I arrived back in Shanghai, and my assistant said, are you OK? I said, sure, why? And she said, well, these two trains just collided. Turns out there were the trains going in the opposite direction. But this was not officially reported for a very long time that, that this collision had happened. But the news first came out uh, via Weibo, and uh, somebody This is uh, what had happened was one train hit the other one, the first car that was hit uh, plunged off of this uh, high-speed overpass, as you can see here. And, uh, uh, a website called Donway went back a year later after the crash, and they reconstructed what happened, and I did my own reporting, and what it, it went back and saw this was pretty accurate, as far as I could tell. But the first reports about that something was amiss didn't come from the official news media. It came through Wayball. And uh, the first report actually came out. They actually went back and found the first uh, dispatches. The first Weiball report came out at uh, seven minutes before the accident when somebody put out a tweet that basically said this. And they translated this for us. So this train is, run- train is running after the th- thunderstorm. What's going on? It crawls slower than a snail, but nothing happens. That came out seven minutes before the crash. Then three minutes after the crash, we had the actual first tweet that something happened. They said the train did an emergency brake, followed by a violent crash. There were two more collisions. The electricity across the entirety of the train has gone out. Now, all of this was directly translated, including all the exclamation points. I'm in the last carriage. Thank God I'm fine. This is just too terrifying. You know, so that came up four minutes, uh, four minutes after the actual crash. And then a few minutes later, you got the next one, a cry for help train D301 has, has been derailed not far from Wenzhou Station. Children are crying up and down the carriage. Now, all this was coming out over the next 30 minutes or so, but there was still no nobody saw any official reports on Xinhua, no official reports on TV, no official radio reports, and this went on and on and on until finally um, you know, people were actually showing up at the site to help friends, etc., and finally they had to break the news on uh, Xinhua, etc., and that, that, that the official media CCTV, that there had been this train crash 40 people were killed in this crash by the way and people were actually taking photographs from inside the train and disseminating those so to me that was the first time that the the official communist government controlled media was forced to follow up because c- citizens were just reporting something that was of great interest to people and that the government would, were, was trying to suppress and uh, and i did talk to some editors later um, back in Beijing, uh, months later, about this, and they said, "Yeah, they were actually told to keep the lid on that, and that, and they were told that, and also their, their all of their training was not to report things like that until they get the official word from Xinhua, which is the official news agency there." Um, I'll, I'll just talk. I just wanted to talk about a couple of these other things, which, which because I think they're absolutely fascinating. Among them, there were um, these reports about uh corruption have been actually uh, quite fascinating. Um, let me see if I can find a couple of them here. The the, uh, the NPC is the National People's Congress. That's the, their version of the parliament. Some of these. We- now this is a website that actually takes Chinese websites and aggregates them. One of the things that the corrupt the, the corruption police have started to do on Weibo is go out and track what they consider uh, uh, evidence of extravagance on the part of some officials. This here is a. This shows some members of the National People's Congress who were supposed to be uh, paid, officially paid with very low salaries wearing expensive uh, clothing that they can't afford. Here's somebody. and th- These are just official photographs they went out and took, or they took them out of the newspapers, and they put them on websites and showing people exactly what these public servants are, are wearing. Here's someone with their May belt. Um, here's a woman who's a delegate to the National People's Congress. I think that's a Louis Vuitton bag she's sporting there. Uh, they've actually taken. These are all official pictures, but they would. What they would do would be take photographs, highlight them as they have. I haven't done this. They've done this. Highlight them here, and then often they would put the, have the price tag next to it, so you could see exactly how much uh, these delegates' bags and uh, and the uh, and various various other accessories cost. And I thought this was just a fantastic one. Some often these members didn't know they were being photographed for that purpose. <laughs> this came out on these internet sites. Uh, the watches are there as well. And I think this is uh, the boots, of course. Now, this is one of my favorites here. <laughs> I think they said that's a bag from a, I don't even know these names. Boteta Veneta? Any of the fashion conscious here? Nobody. <laughs> I don't got it, don't it. I've never heard of it. Madison Avenue <laughs> and 57. Maybe no they <laughs> <laughs> And I like the Burberry handbag being carried by one of the ethnic minorities. You know they're, the hmm? they're all made in China. How do you know they're
0: not the
2: ripoff? Uh, well, because the wealthy never buy the ripoff ones. <laughs> but it was, and there actually have been people who have lost their jobs because of some of this, uh, because of some of this going on too, which has been absolutely fascinating. The the uh, there, there was a um, the same organization that put together the Wenjia train crash uh, uh, tweets. Uh, went back and looked at this. they surveyed what they called the twenty four most corrupt officials. These are all people who have either were brought down by exposes on these Weibo sites or uh, the internet played a, a primary role in exposing what they were up to. and they actually created this, which they called the uh, the hit list of the uh, of the of the twenty four what they call the most corrupt. All of these were brought down because netizens were able to go online and expose something about them all. Now, I put this up here only because. The fact that this outfit is even able to operate means that these kind of investigations are no longer in the shadows. Before, when the party got rid of got rid of somebody because of corruption, we wouldn't even hear about it, or we would only get the official version. And now their cases are all sort of their cases and their faces are all put out there in front of the public, which I find is just absolutely incredible. And I wanted to show you just a, a couple of other things, and then stop. One is um, this is the one I wanted to show you, which is the food safety website. Um, if you can see that here, this is a young man who just got tired of finding these cases, uh, these cases involving bad foods, and so he put together a map that would show. He would just take cases that are in the uh, in the press, and he would show you where they're finding cont- bad or contaminated food. It's in Chinese, a little bit hard to read, but uh, he he actually got this idea from from looking at U.S. websites to do that. And basically, he's tracking uh, contaminated meat, contaminated milk, contaminated baby powder, and showing areas in China, and it's updated by volunteers. He was a young man. I went to meet at a Fudan University in Shanghai. He started doing this as a project on his own, and he said within months he had hundreds of volunteers. Um, He tries to make sure to track the cases that have been published to make sure they're accurate before he puts them on the sites. He doesn't allow the volunteers to put things immediately on the site. But that's an example of what I meant by consumer activism um, growing in China. And, you know, all of us, you know, when, when Weibo first started, it made people, a lot of people think that this was going to lead to a change of government or, or democracy in China. I think that was a little bit far, but it's leading to a, certain, a new wave of activism, at least. We don't know how far that's going to go. And it, I, I want to end it by just talking about the Chinese government's response to all of this. And uh, I put the response in two categories, what I call uh, repression and acceptance. And they've, and they've alternated between both, and they've done both at the same time. Uh, under the category of repression... Um, I mean, the the minimum they've done is require real name registration, uh, which sounds like a minor thing. But in China, if you have to actually go in to register your Weibo account under your real name and your real address with your real ID card number, that means anything you post can be traced back to you. Um, Before that, it had been anonymous. You could register as anyone or register any address. But they're pushing that. They first started it in Beijing, Shanghai, and a couple other major cities. Now they're trying to go to a nationwide a real name registration regime. Uh, the uh, the next level up in the in the category of repression would be actually shutting down uh, your Weibo site if you you know if you violate their terms of use. And by the way, they do this not the government itself. They rely on the the Weibo, the companies that host these things to do it. They say you're responsible for taking that guy's Weibo site down because it's offended, you know, one of our rules or regulations. So shutting down individual Weibo sites, that's been less effective because people have figured out that there are several companies that host these things. So you shut down one, they can go to another company and reopen one or try to move around. Many people have more than one weiball site. Uh, The third thing they do is blocking search terms, which is fairly common. Um, That means that Weibo, like Twitter, you can search a term to see what's trending. Right now, you cannot search for the term, I'm told, I haven't checked this out, you can't search for the term uh, H1N1 virus or bird flu. That's being blocked now. They don't want people on trend, they don't want that topic trending because they've had six bird flu deaths in China and they're a bit concerned about that. Uh, The next thing they can do along that line of repression stepping up a bit would be, and they have done this regularly, is arrest or detain uh, bloggers or people for what they post. Um, that doesn't happen as regularly um, because they have these other means they can go through first, but they have arrested some bloggers, particularly if they were called uh, what they consider repeat offenders. And, then, uh, and, and so that would be the kind of the, the highest level. The, the next level up, which the, nobody thinks they have will do, would be to shut down Weibo entirely. And I've asked several times among activists, why don't they just shut it down if it's causing that many problems? They said they, that they really fear that that would create a backlash because it's become, number one, hugely popular. And number two, most people on Weibo are not, they're not talking about democracy or, you know, consumer issues. They're following sports stars and following actors or actresses. And to shut that down to keep these other things out, I think, would create a backlash. And then finally, on the opposite side now, in addition to the repression side, they've actually kind of come to recognize that this is something that's there. It's a, it's a, new, it's a new day in China. Weibo is something that exists and so they've decided we've got to get into that space and try to control it. So all the ministries, all the local governments, the police offices, the police stations in all the cities and towns have been told, get on Weibo, get your on Weibo sites, get our message out there instead. Counter the negative messages that are out there. And so you, they've created what uh, in China, they call it the 50 cent party. Um, they call it that because they pay people 50 cents each time they go on Weibo and send out counter messages or pro-government messages, so they're known as the 50 cent party. Um, the uh, Beijing police now have their own Weibo account where they can you know, put out their own uh, propaganda. propaganda. The word propaganda is actually not a bad word in Chinese. It has negative connotations in English, but it's not a bad connotation in Chinese. And they say put our propaganda out there to counter the negative uh, messages that are there. And finally, Xi Jinping, the new president, uh, just appointed to general secretary of the party in November and then president in March, Uh, he has started this trend. There are now Xi Jinping Weibo fan sites that have started there. They claim they have nothing to do with the president. Um, I find these things absolutely fascinating, because in China, you know nothing about the leaders, unlike here. And so, therefore, Xi Jinping has now put out this new – this is one site that just came out with something unusual. This may not seem unusual if you don't know China, but to see – Old family pictures. This is where she lived as a, as a young man with, during the Cultural Revolution. These are old pictures. That's him over the shoulder. These are old family pictures. That's him, I think, with his, uh, yeah, with his father. And by the way, they call him Ping Ping. Now, to call a Chinese leader by a nickname and show these old family photos of him is just shocking. I mean, it's just something. When people saw this, they went, wow, this is something incredibly unusual. This is an old visit he took to the United States. And this was put out like a family portrait. And nobody could understand what was going on here, why this was being done. There he is, I think that's Jiang Zemin. He's, and it's just showing you how popular he was at the time or how high level he was that he was able to hold meetings with Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, and old family pictures of him here, including old college pictures of him. And then my favorite one is uh, the next one here, which shows him as a young man at university. This, and it's actually This was translated from Chinese. This is when our Ping Ping was young handsome and a little bit shy. And then finally, <laughs> there's my favorite. <laughs> now to see that in China, I've never seen a baby picture of, of uh, Hu Jintao. I don't think anybody has ever seen that. <laughs> so the idea now that, that the Chinese leader feels the need to get out there in that space and use this space shows that on the other hand, when they're not repressing Weibo, they think that it's a tool that they can use to kind of build public support behind the leadership as well. So you know, when I saw this come out, I just thought that was great. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave Baby ping-ping over our shoulder while we <laughs> chat, if you want, and we'll see if you've got any questions. Open it up. I probably talked a little bit longer than I should have. Let
1: me, let me ask the first, sure. and then we, then we will open it. As you look at this, mm-hmm. and given your understanding of, of, of China, what do you see coming in the next years? And mm-hmm. I would love to hear some of our Chinese guests comment mm-hmm. in the same way. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you think this suggests about the way China mm-hmm. will go in political terms, in terms of uh, media and control and so forth, some of the things you've raised?
2: That's a a really good question. The short answer is no one knows, (laughs) which is a cop-out answer. And The Economist, actually, this week has a special report on this very topic uh, pointing out that in the 90s Bill Clinton went to China and said the Internet's going to democratize China. And he said that, I think, 10 years ago or more, 12 years ago. And uh, it hasn't happened yet. And it it hasn't happened because, as I said here, that the Chinese have seen that they can use it as a tool for control and propaganda as much as they fear it. So I think it's going to be a little back and forth for a while. One thing I think will happen – so in terms of changing the political system to democracy, one thing I think is already happening is it's making the government more accountable. Um, For the first time in, I think, ever in China, public opinion counts – um, they can't just do things the way they used to. They can't just announce edicts. They've announced a couple of things uh, that they've actually had to roll back. And some of these are minor things. These are Be- you know, Beijing government local things. But the Beijing government announced that they were going to start ticketing cars that go through yellow lights as opposed to red lights. Because this was a big problem where cars would just uh, zip through the yellow lights. So they announced this. There was an uproar online. And the government actually had to retract that and say, okay, we won't really enforce They actually started trying to do it for a while, and you know, cars were complaining about the traffic jams, et cetera, and the lights are very long. And they actually rolled back the regulation and just said, okay, we won't enforce it, all because of online activity. And so I think it is making the government more accountable. Um, it's, it remains to be seen whether at a higher level it can change policy. One thing I'm fascinated by now is there's a lot of online comment very, very critical of North Korea. And asking why are we supporting this rogue regime, and I think it's putting the government in China in a real tough position now, where they actually have to account for public opinion in, in some to some degree. So, the short answer is, I think it's going to make it a more accountable government. I think it's going to make it a more effective government in the sense that they're actually going to be listening to what people say and in incorporating public opinion into their policymaking. Whether or not it changes the system, I think is going to be a it's going to be a tough call. And, and,
1: and what about the issue of of. Uh, <clears throat> of corporate governance in a modern state uh, that wants to be one of the world players in economic terms, but <clears throat> that requires a certain amount of transparency and accountability, mm-hmm. um, that would be, I would think, something yeah. of a challenge.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. That it's, it's, the pressure, I think, for more openness mm-hmm. is not coming from the normal, the, what we call the usual suspects, the dissidents and the activists. It's coming from business um, and, and academics in, a, in, a, in a, to a lesser degree, but business is saying, you know, right now the Internet's censored, and when it's not censored, it's extremely slow. You can't go on Google and just Google something if you need to see it. And you're starting to get businesses complain that they need to be connected to the wider World Wide Web, and you're starting to get foreign uh, businesses to say it's affecting uh, the, their ability to operate there. The American Chamber of Commerce has started to say that the slowness of the Internet and the censorship is really affecting, number one, their ability to do business there, and number two, their ability to that and other areas like pollution, uh, their ability to relocate people to China. Um, in fact, there are, you know, I've been reading these stories, and I'm still kind of checking them out, that there's now a, an exodus of expats from China because they're saying, look, it's just too hard to do business here, et cetera. That and these, uh, the cyber attacks and, and, and fear of that, even if it's not so, I know for a fact, because I have some friends there in business, they say if they have to have an important meeting uh, in China and it's a proprietary business information, they can't do it in Beijing or Shanghai. They get on a plane and fly to Seoul, and they have their meeting for the day, and then they fly back because they just don't trust that their computers are safe, they're not being listened to. And they say that's a huge cost to doing business there, and at some point that's going to add up. And also just in terms of transparency, you know, they, they have dreams for a lot of Chinese companies to go international, and, but you can't do that. If you're not going to abide by, you know, we have regulations in this country, you've got to open your books, you've got to, you've got to show us where the money is, and I think that's really going to force a lot of companies to kind of, you know, you know, at least raise the question, can they operate in the old kind of opaque ways they used to, or do they really want to be a part of the international system?
1: Uh, <clears throat> let me invite the uh, people here who are students at the Kennedy School or students at Harvard uh, to have the first shot at uh, questions. Any of you who would like to ask a question of Keith who are here? No. So, uh, as well. yes. How
0: does the online censorship work in real time? Because mm. the, the, there's a huge volume of Right. The, I saw with the train wreck, you know, mm-hmm.
2: things that censor.
0: But how quick are they? On, you know, sort of how, does, that's, how does that apparatus
2: work? That's a great, that's a great question. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a massive system. I'm amazed at how much time and resources and money they must have put into the censorship system. And it comes on different, multiple layers, and they're not mutually exclusive. The main, uh, the main censorship organ they use are the companies themselves. So it would be like uh, Baidu and, and QQ and Tencent, these companies that host the sites. They would be just like Google and AOL and, and Yahoo. And what they do is they've made the companies responsible for censoring what's on their sites. And they have an army of people who kind of monitor sensitive things, but you know they don't actually go on and take down a, web, a website or, or block a search term. They'll tell the company, hey, they'll call them up and they'll have the manager's numbers or their emails and I've actually seen some of the traffic back and forth they'll say you know take down take down the you know take down the discussion about bird flu in Shanghai you know and they don't, they don't give a reason they'll just say you know just take that down or they'll say on something like the Wenzhou train crashes for example they'll say only use the official Xinhua version of the story don't allow any other versions to be circulating out there and they make the website uh, owners responsible and those are businesses and most of their business is not just these Weibo sites. It's inter- you know it's all kinds of you know, uh, you know eBay style you know uh, things, entertainment, sports, etc. They don't want to lose their business license, so they're more than willing to cooperate. And in some areas, I suspect they self-censor. They go overboard, uh, suspecting what's going to be too sensitive and taking it down themselves. So that's just that's kind of the main layer of it. On top of the, so search engines uh, censoring terms in search engines is the main way they they try to do it. Um, and then taking down things. But in real, they can't actually take things down in real time, and this is the uh, amazing thing about WebAW is they can kind of detect, and they have people monitoring these things all the time. They can usually detect when something's out there they don't like, and it can go down relatively quickly, but it's usually up there for about an hour or sometimes longer. And I've learned, and my staff has learned, and all of us, I mean all the journalists who were there learned that when you see something up that's fascinating or amazing, take a, take a snapshot of it because it may be gone within you know an hour or so and you'll never be able to find it again by searching so take a snapshot and that's your record that it's actually been up there um, I, I could tell you some more examples but i don't want to hold up <laughs> from questions but uh, there's some there are fascinating stories of things that i've gone back to try to find later and they weren't around anymore so i've actually was lucky to get the snapshots
1: other questions mm-hmm. or comments yeah
2: um
1: mm-hmm. uh, sorry about michigan by the way yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, they're
2: leading by 12 in the first half <laughs> they were that was a good half um who owns Weibo, and what's their relationship like directly with the government? And yeah. then also, are there any platforms that um, actively kind of push back against yeah. the government and don't accommodate their requests or their... Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Weibo is a, is, a, is a generic term we use for all of these sites, like Twitter. Oh, okay. Okay. But there's like several companies that have Weibo. Right um the biggest is called cena cena dot com which is an, inter- an online entertainment company that has uh they do all kinds of you know they'll they'll show the olympics online et cetera but and one of the things they do is host this uh this site called cena wayball and because they were the biggest and the first we call them all Weibo, but in fact they're they're different ones so they're different companies ten ten cent t e n c e n t is one q q Ren, which is people to people they, there's there's usually there's probably about a dozen of them, although you know the biggest one is Sina Weibo, and most people tend to be on most of the big names tend to be on Sina Weibo. Actually, what will usually happen is, it's kind of like a, in the U.S. you'll have a Gmail account, but you'll also have an, a Hotmail and a Yahoo that you really use very much. Most people have a Sina Weibo. They'll also have a Ten Cent. They'll also have a QQ or Renren or one of these other ones, and they're 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 privately held companies. Usually opened by pretty savvy businessmen who got into that internet space a decade or so ago. And again, like I said, most of their money or business doesn't come from these Weibo uh, accounts. That's just kind of an ancillary thing. Most of it comes from other areas, and so that's why that's a big pressure point. They, want to, they don't want to jeopardize their business by hosting these things, so that's why they tend to be more than accommodating when they're asked to take these things down. Uh, Baidu, which is the biggest search engine site there that kind of is a copy of Google in a way, um, they don't, as far as I know, and I could be wrong, they don't have a Weibo site. And I was asking somebody, why didn't you have one? They said, because it creates all kinds of trouble. You know, you've got Weibo on, and pe- then they want you to monitor what's being set on it, et cetera, so we don't want to get into that space.
1: What Are there foreign-owned companies um, or platforms that are playing ball in that space? That have,
2: we- that have Weibo account? No. Yeah. Uh, no, but, but uh, it's interesting, though, that foreigners can get on. Uh, I can open a Weibo account. Yeah. Uh, the U.S. Embassy has a Weibo account, actually. And it actually, it, it's, it's fascinating, because it's a way that they now allow... You know, the US Embassy, the EU, or whatever can reach Chinese people directly in Chinese on their Weibo accounts, which I think is Do Facebook,
1: best Twitter, and Google operate in China now?
2: Twitter is blocked. Uh, Google you can use, but they block a lot of terms on it. And it seems to work, some days are harder than others. So I can, and, and it tends to route you through to Google Hong Kong. Um, so if, I'm in, so if, I, if I type in google.com in China, I'll get routed to Google Hong Kong. And then via Google Hong Kong, it just depends on what day of the week it is. Most times it's fine. Some days, if I'm trying to do research for a story, I can type in Tiananmen Square massacre and it'll come up with a message saying, "Can't you know this? This you know your this this can't be found or something like that." Dalai Lama. Yeah, Dalai Lama is usually blocked. There's a there's a website here. I think I have it actually up here. It is. This will tell you uh, what's it's called GreatFire.org, and it will actually tell you what terms and and sites are blocked and how often they're blocked. If you want to try. Uh, Oh, I don't know. Do you want to try Dalai Lama? It'll usually tell you how many times—if you, know, you can figure it out—it'll tell you how many times a thing has been blocked. Or you can test—you can test keywords there. And it's, it's—it's kind of oh, it's, I see. It's just connecting there now. It'll tell you, you know, whether or not these terms are blocked. It'll tell you how often it's been blocked in the last few days or not, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, here it is. Dalai Lama is. On C, that that S-Weibo was the CETA-Weibo, the main one. Since May 2012, it's been blocked 100% of the time. <laughs> so you can, anybody can go in there and have fun with it. Yes. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering,
0: there's also been, like, I'm usually thinking of the Southern League League. Yes. To happen, and so there's kind of this backlash against the censorship itself. Uh-huh. And I kind of thought, oh, this is an opening, but it uh-huh. kind of just died down. And, like, what are your thoughts
2: on that? It you did, yeah. That? Many people like myself were caught up thinking, oh, this is the start of the campaign against censorship, and it lasted about a week or two because what happened was basically they came to the editor and put pressure on him to clamp down on these protests. If you, if what happened was the, um, just in a nutshell, it's a long and complicated story, but the Southern Weekend, which is also called Southern Weekly uh, interchangeably, uh, they pub- every year they publish a New Year's message in the first week of January. This year they published a New Year's message saying this New Year we hope for you know, great changes in China, including the rule of law and, and this sort of thing. You know, It's very mundane stuff. Uh, the censor, it's based in southern China down in Guangdong province, which is a little more open and reform-minded than the rest of the country. Uh, but there was a new censor in place down there, a new a s- government censor there. Uh, somehow, after the time, the editors of the Southern Weekend, which is a weekly newspaper, um, they had gone home he saw this thing and called in and ordered some low level person in the newspaper to make some changes and even inserted some paragraphs saying that you know, the communist party will hold the banner high sort of thing. so the editors say they you know they just saw it in the paper and they never approved these changes and so uh, the reason that and that's created a huge uproar among the staff and then among readers who respected this paper as one that kind of was reform minded um, because basically there had never been an instance of a government censor directly calling in and changing the wording of a, an editorial that had already been approved by its editors behind the backs of the editors. And so this caused a huge uproar. Some of the staff said they were going to go out on strike. And then the most fascinating thing is you saw the gen- members of the general public and, and high-profile people, actors, business people, sports stars in China who don't normally get involved in politics, started putting out on their Weibo pages, your Weibo has just like Twitter, you can put your picture there and a little slogan. They started putting little slogans out saying, we stand with Southern Weakland, or let's end to censorship, et cetera. And this was escalating to a point where the government thought, well, this is getting a little bit out of control now. So they just went to, and the, edit, and the newspaper's journalists were saying they weren't going to work anymore. Uh, they basically told the editor that you're going to lose your job and we'll shut the paper down. And then this was conveyed to the journalist there. And basically, to make a long story short, the journalists all decided that, you know, in that atmosphere, they'd rather keep their jobs um, and then become unemployed journalists who could probably never be employed again if they were known to have lost their jobs at Southern Weekend. And uh, before I left Beijing in January, the last person I went to see was Ai Weiwei, who I got to know over the years, various things, and I was talking to him. And he, unprompted by me, told me how disappointed he was in this because he said this was a case where the people, the readers of this magazine newspaper, were willing to stand up against censorship and were willing to go out on the streets and protest but they weren't joined by the journalists the journalists just kind of decided that keeping their jobs were more important and I talked to a journalist very off the record and nobody would talk about this I got one journalist to agree to meet me way outside in a coffee shop you know and basically the message was look you know we you know they have jobs they have mortgages to pay they have families to feed and they couldn't you know they couldn't. They didn't want to make this the, the point at which they decided to throw it all away on this minor issue of censorship. They thought they had won some battle by bringing this up publicly, and they're going to try to fight another day. But they just wasn't risk. It wasn't worth having the whole paper shut. And they would have shut the entire paper down. So that's yeah. Yes. Uh, thanks so much. Um, so I have a couple
0: of questions. The first one is I mean, I know that. Um, you know, Baidu and so on, uh, way smaller than Google at the moment. But it, it seems to me that this, there's this interesting tension that, on the one hand, the Chinese government fears this technology; on the other hand, they know it's it's utterly important for the modern Chinese 21st century. So, to what extent do you see them competing in future with our Western technology giants? Uh-huh. Are they beginning to? Uh, in Silicon Valley, Are they, you know, what
2: is the Oh, that's, absolutely. well, absolutely, yeah. I mean, they, they, they know they're in that space. I mean, you know, they, they Chinese, gov- it's a huge, complicated topic, but, the, you know, the Chinese government waged this uh, campaign against Google, you could say, you know, trying to tell Google it had to play by Chinese rules and Google was blocked for a long time. Uh, there is speculation, and I tend to see some, uh, some evidence of it, that this anti-Google campaign allowed Baidu to grow. It allowed it allowed a, a Chinese company to grow. And somebody who used a high up person from Google went to work for Baidu. And so Baidu was able to be protected in the space because they were going after Google. I don't know if you've noticed now that there's been this campaign against Apple going on. Yes. And I a lot of people think, you know, Apple was growing too strong in China. It's a Western company. But so they've launched this campaign saying, and which means a campaign, meaning you start seeing editorials coming out in the official papers. And then these huge boycotts saying Apple doesn't care about Chinese consumers. They charge more for this product in China than they charge for it in the U.S. So, and then at the same time, that's now allowing the indigenous Chinese companies to grow. So a lot of this is, I think, commercially uh, uh, motivated, but giving giving that space around. Facebook is blocked in China, but there's a new thing. There's a new thing. Not a new thing. There's a Chinese version of Facebook called Renren. Uh, so you could, so you know, it, by blocking some of these Chinese, uh, by these Western companies, it allows indigenous Chinese companies the space and time to grow and develop a little bit more. So I think there is definitely a, a competition for that space. And
0: do they get traffic outside of China? These, these not
2: yet, but I think they're going to, and I think they're trying to target, um, especially the Chinese diaspora community outside of China, where they see there is some space for that now. But I think that's a huge thing: is the competition. Some of, the, some of the attacks against the Western Internet companies I see as a directly commercially motivated effort to help build up the smaller Chinese companies. And it's not just there as well. I mean, I think uh, there's some – you can go into the automobile industry as well where they're getting a little bit angry that they're uh, Chinese are buying too many American-made cars. So they're doing all kinds of things, limiting cars to try to help build up the indigenous Chinese car industry, including you – know, they're, they're already forced to be in joint ventures Ford Motor Company can't just be there as Ford Motor Company. They're forced by law to partner with a Chinese company and start transferring some technology to the Chinese company. And then by putting limit, they just started to try to put limits on government official purchases of foreign cars, hoping that will help the Chinese car companies a bit. So there, there's a lot of stuff going on there like that. Yes, yes, I
1: have a question. About,
2: about, yes, as a reporter at the Washington Post, mm-hmm. uh, I was wondering whether or how can you,
0: you can collect genuine or one hand news. China okay what's your main what are your main
2: resources when I was in China yeah what's yeah, oh, hard I mean you know, I try to go well first of all I try to go to the government but they don't like to talk to us very much <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so but you know one of the one of the great changes to me is uh, in the last 10 15 years in China is there are more people to talk to than before I don't you don't need to rely on the government there's businesses there's academics who are willing to talk to us there are people who were in government who are now outside of government and and there there's there's a lot of talk and things on the internet and the media um, so especially for some of the if I'm doing stories on internet censorship a lot of these internet companies they're not government agencies, They some will talk um, I talked to a lot of I've met, I got to be friends with a couple of Chinese journalists including an editor of a major newspaper who would never want their name to be used but they'd meet you over coffee and kind of explain what's going on in the background um, some of these stories like the one on Mr. Sun who chopped off his finger and did the, and the entrapment case, in that case I just went to Shanghai and just went outside the office where this was going on and just interviewed some of the drivers there who explained what was going on and then t- talked to Mr. Sun's lawyers who were more than willing to talk about his case. So there's, you, even though the government doesn't like to talk to us, there are now just a whole, whole huge area yeah. that we can, a huge space that we as foreign journalists can operate in and they don't like that very much. They'd like us to just come to their press conferences and cover official information and official releases of documents but you know we're starting to be able to move around a lot more fr- freely than we were before. How to identify the news Oh, how do to identify what's news? Well, that's a tough one. I mean, that's pretty much the same in every country because you're in a country as big and vast as China, and you have to decide what's of interest to your audience that day. So you really, in consultation with your editors, every day I'm looking, I'm reading the Chinese papers, first of all. I get, would get up every morning and see what the Chinese papers are writing about and talking about. And then kind of expand it beyond that and see. And sometimes, you know, as an old correspondent, my attitude was, if I'm just walking down the street or having lunch with someone or reading something in the paper and I stop and say, wow, that's interesting, then I think my readers are going to find it interesting too. But it's really a matter of, uh, to me, I call China low-hanging fruit. It's just there's so much going on. It's just a matter of every day deciding, am I going to write about Internet censorship or the slowdown in the economy or... Growing poverty, inequality, or what they're doing on 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 health care—it's just a matter of picking and choosing that week what you're going to focus on. There's no shortage of stories out of China.
0: Dorothy, I wanted to ask you about the sea
2: turtles. The sea turtles are the Chinese who have been educated overseas and now coming home. There may be some here. What? There may be some here. (laughs) (laughs)
0: was the Chinese Academy of Sciences, the National Academy of Sciences, visiting professor at the University of Beijing. And then uh, I was interviewing the handful, I think I met them uh-huh. all, of Chinese who came home uh-huh. people book in science with PhDs. And if I had to characterize the period, it was by the people who knocked on my door late at night and said, can you get me into the United States? Uh-huh. That was really the consistent message in 86. Now I've been going back. Mm-hmm. And I'm meeting all the people who are choosing mm-hmm. to come back. But I can't get any numbers. And I was wondering if you have any sense of what the percentage of returned Chinese is mm-hmm. relative to those who are going abroad for education.
2: That's a really good question. I, it's, I think now we're up to more than half go back really? voluntarily. Um, I, I've I see less... that
0: ties into your Internet. Absolutely. it's easy to go back now if you can keep in touch with your old lab.
2: Absolutely. On the internet. It seems to go back now. I'll just tell you one story. I was, in 1990, 91, academic year, I went to Hawaii to the East-West Center to mm-hmm. do a fellowship. And uh, at the time, they were bringing over one or two Chinese fellows for this program called the Jefferson Fellows. Right. And the problem was, they, they, used, they started having there that the East-West Center was the Chinese, they would never go back. Once they got right. to the US, <laughs> they would never go back to China. And so this Jefferson Fellowship started only bringing over married Chinese who had their families back in China. Mm-hmm. So that was 1991, the big issue was nobody would ever go back. Now the problem is the exact opposite. People come here and get an education, and we can't get them to stay. For visa reasons, uh, we don't allow them to stay, or they just decide that there's more to do back in China. I've talked to a, I did a, some interviews on that in Shanghai. I talked to a lot of people, who, a lot of Chinese who had studied in the U.S., gotten their MBAs or studied computer science, and they were back there as managers. And I asked them, why would you come back? And they said, well, I can always go back to the U.S. if I want. But they said, number one, um, they can make more money in China more quickly. And they could say, if I started out in the U.S. in a company, I was going to start out at the, as a low level and have to work my way up. And I come back to China with my U.S. education, I can come in at the top. And that's, a lot of them see that they can move up a lot more quickly that way. And by the way, a lot of companies, in, in, a lot of foreign companies I right. talk to, especially American companies, kind of complained that they said, number one, they can't keep people very long, and and, right. and because somebody who comes back with a U.S. education doesn't want to stay and do the training period and move their way up, they expect to come in at a high level. And secondly, they said what happens is they come in at a high level, and then guess what? A rival company will hire them away within a few weeks. There's no loyalty. He'll, he'll come and work for like six weeks, and someone will offer him a... I know that because I had to deal with staff, and people kept poaching my translators. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah.
1: So I have a questions there. about the government and mm-hmm. the way they um, look at this wave war thing. Mm-hmm. Number one, did you think that the government was prepared for what would happen with wave war? And number two, what is it's the purpose of the government let it happen? I mean, everything in China happens because the government lets it happen. Yeah, is that's a really a good question. Of the government having it, and what are they learning from
2: it? That's a that's a great question. I think number one, they didn't expect it to blow up as quickly as it did. I think the people saw that as a platform and just started using. It. I thought. And the reason for that is, and I haven't actually done the research on this, I'm pretty sure this is true, is they, the government's filled with a lot of older people who don't really understand the Internet and didn't understand Weibo. And I think this came along a lot faster than they were able to kind of understand the impact of it. I think they were caught off guard, especially by things like the Wenja train crash or how quickly people were on Weibo in that space talking about Fukushima. I don't think they were prepared for it. I think now they're getting, now they understand it. And, now, and that's why I said now I think they're, they're telling their ministries and others to get into that space. But the first government uh, minister to open a Weibo account was fairly late. I think it was 2010. I'll have to look up the exact date. And it was the uh, party secretary in Xinjiang, um, believe it or not, of all places, who opened the first Weibo. And I was amazed at that. But they just—I think they were just kind of not really seeing that, not really, and it just really snuck up on them at how popular it suddenly became. So, so I don't think it was calculated that they let it come along. But I think once it was, but I think that was why the problem. Once it, once it was there, and had exploded to such popularity that it would be really difficult for them to suddenly kind of cut it off without you know, risking a backlash.
1: Let me invite if it, if we have any Chinese guests. Yes, please. I, I'm not a Chinese guest. Well, all right. I'm <laughs> with them.
2: Absolutely. The U.S. Navy. Oh, yeah.
0: I had a question about uh, Chinese nationalism mm-hmm. and your views on whether you think the government sort of controls that uh, nationalism, or is it more of a reactionary mode
2: where yeah. people are just nationalistic? That's a real good question. Um, I mean, there is there is a natural nationalism there. And this relates to the Weibo, too, because they can use that to stoke out things when they want or peel it back. Um, the main word you use there is control. I don't think they can control it, which is the problem. So, I mean, it's, whenever, they want it, whenever they're feeling threatened, like during the Arab Spring, when suddenly people started saying, hmm, author- people taking to the streets to protest against an authoritarian government, hmm, this is not good, right? So they push the anti-Japanese button. And all of a sudden, you can get, you know, a million people on the streets in Shanghai demonstrating against Japan. But then what happens is they start attacking Toyotas and then the Chinese guy is beaten and almost killed I think in his car. And then all of a sudden the chase oh we have to rein this back in now but it's not as easy to rein it in. So I don't think they can control it. I think they they use it and they try to manipulate anti-Japanese sentiment as much as they can, but I think they realize it's a very dangerous thing because it's also dangerous because people go off script. I mean they can get Ten thousand. They're going to get ten thousand people on the streets tomorrow, and they'll give them handheld signs saying "Down with Japan." But then somebody's going to turn it around and say "Down with the Communist Party." Whoops! They went off script. You know, so it's really hard to control that. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, who do you think um, democratization process will come from? Uh, uh, American educated people, are people stay at home. That's do you, a really. Yeah, Mm-hmm. That's a really good question, actually. I mean, I was surprised to learn how many hundreds of officials, especially at the provincial level and, and above, you know, senior provincial level, who've been educated right here at the Kennedy School at the Ash mm-hmm. Center mm-hmm. over there, <laughs> including somebody on the pulpit, Viral, Lao right? So you've actually got you know you've got people going back now. I don't know if they're are they going back imbued with the ideas of John F. Kennedy when they go back to China from the Kennedy School. You know, it remains to be seen, but you're starting to get, you know, thanks to Tony Seix and others who are taking hundreds of of officials back, there are a lot of Chinese officials who are going back now, you know, who've been here, who have been exposed to us, and maybe they kind of, if they go to Nick Burns' class, they might learn that, you know, we're not out to contain China, et cetera. So that has to have some impact. you know, it's, a, it's always a big question. You know, Democratization will come to China because Chinese people start demanding it. I think it's going to be some combination of the two. I mean, because you know, even when I talk to people who are not, not only not Western educated, but not even particularly educated, the average rural person, you know, they, they know what they want, they don't, and they're not actually, they don't call it democracy. They want to know that if they get in trouble with the police, that they're going to be treated fairly. Um, if they have a dispute with somebody, they can go to a court and they'll be heard out and the court will rule fairly, even if that person's a Communist Party member and they're not. Um, you know, they want to make sure that they can, you know, they can work hard and not have to actually pay a bribe to a local you know, local official because of licensing and this sort of thing if they run a business. So, All they want is fair treatment. They want to know if they can get their kids a place in the university uh, based on their test scores and not who paid the most money for, <laughs> to find that spot. So all of these things aren't dem- democracy per se. But, but they are a challenge to the system.
1: Keith, this has been fascinating. Thank you so very much.